Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. My name is Sanjay Merchant. It's good to be here in Everett again and see all you guys. Uh, I'm a teaching pastor here, but of course visiting. Um, I come from Chicago where I'm a professor at Moody Bible Institute. But I'm always here in spirit and uh, I've been following along with our series in Ephesians 6 on the armor of God. And um, it's been a really a blessing to me. I get to talk with the teaching team every week and think through some of these things and talk through many of these things and then, uh, and then take in the sermons like you do and it's, it's been a real blessing to me. We wanna continue on in Ephesians 6 with verse 16. Ephesians 6, 16. So, open up your Bible. If you need a Bible, I believe we have them. We do. Yeah, just put your hand up if you, if you need a Bible or open up your app to Ephesians 6. Now remember, in Ephesians 6, here comes Rick with the Bibles. In Ephesians 6, Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God and then gives us this amazing set of metaphors indicating to us what the spiritual life entails, what is involved in the spiritual life, and what uh, God has to give us for our spiritual life. Uh, Just to recap, we've already seen in verse 14, the belt of truth, the belt of truth. And then also in verse, uh, verse 14, the breastplate of righteousness. So the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Now you can imagine they're living in a Roman world, as we know, the New Testament, and this would have been somewhat familiar to people to see Roman soldiers dressed in these kinds of ways. So surely a belt, gurgy right in the middle, holds everything together. What holds everything together in the Christian life, Paul is telling us? Well, this belt of truth, and then this breastplate of righteousness, which protects the heart. Here's something... Okay, I'm back. Okay, just when I said, here's something really important. (laughs) The mic died. Mike said, I'm not ready for it. But this microphone will convey something important that we can't forget about this armor that Paul's talking about. If you were a soldier, this armor would be issued to you. You don't bring it from your home. The Romans, by this time, were a professional army. They were a professional army, very important. So if you wanted to enlist in the Roman army, you would be given these things. So Paul is telling us through this metaphor, something that we can't forget. The truth isn't your own. You didn't find it in yourself. Did any of us figure out these great spiritual truths through our own wisdom? No, no, it was given to us. We helped to discover the truth in life. None of us invents the truth, right? But then, very importantly, notice that righteousness is given to us. Righteousness. Righteousness, it's a biblical term. We don't always have a good sense for what it means, but in the classical Greek sense, the term dikaiosune could be translated justice, it could be translated virtue. 
something like that. So the philosophers would speak of the kaiosune. Paul and the apostles and the New Testament writers, they use the same term, but they use it in a Christian sense. Righteousness is given from God. So you know how we Bible-believing Christians, we say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. It's a very strange claim to the world. They're not entirely sure what we mean by that. But what we intend to say is that I don't have righteousness in myself. The Bible says something very offensive about you and me. There is nothing good in us. Surely, there must be something good in me. I mean, I'm not always bad. You know, I have bad days, but I'm a pretty good person. No, you're not. You're a vicious person. Given the right opportunity, you cannot be trusted. You don't do things to please God. You do selfish things consistently. Thank God that there's some structure around us, and we sort of sober up when we realize we can't get away with all the vicious things we would like to do. Well, I check my heart. I don't want to do vicious things. I love people. I'm a caring person. No, you're not. Who says? That offends me. Oh, God says. It's very hard to accept. It's a very hard pill to swallow. It doesn't seem true. I struggle with that. It doesn't seem true to me. But unfortunately, humanity proves time and time again that given the right opportunity, good people will be shockingly vicious. Shockingly. There's been times in our own lives where we've shocked ourselves. The Bible, from a God's eye view, just takes a step back and says this to all of humanity. We are fundamentally broken. There's nothing good or right in us. What God finds in us is sin, viciousness, evil. In fact, Jesus, he goes around preaching and teaching. He says, my father in heaven has sent me, and he's not your father. You're sons of the devil. I mean, those are fighting words. That is very offensive. But that was Jesus' teaching. The good news is this. On the cross, what Jesus does is he takes away our sin, by which we incur an infinite moral debt to God. You owe to God an infinite moral debt which you can never pay back. So never mind proving your worth to God and your worthiness of heaven through your good works. You're never going to pay off an infinite debt. Guess what? Jesus Christ, who is the infinite righteousness of God, pays off that debt, but then doesn't leave us dead broke. If somebody paid off your infinite debt, then you would have a, your bank account would say zero. That's better than being in infinite debt, but being in dead broke isn't great. So guess what? That's not the whole story. He doesn't just take away our sins, but he gives us his righteousness. His righteousness is now yours, and that's what Paul is saying here. So his righteousness is something given. So if we do good works, and ultimately our hope is that God would say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. If you love people and care for them and want to do ministering, healthy, encouraging, loving, friendship-building things, it's because of the righteousness given to us by God that is spurring us on by means of the facilitation of the Spirit to do those things. But it's not in us. Anyway, there you go. You can take it or leave it, but that's what the Bible says. In verse 15, Paul then talks about two other really interesting things. Shoes, which we heard about last week. Shoes, which he also calls the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Really interesting. We heard about that last week. And today we'll talk about the shield of faith, also given to us, not something that you find inherently in yourself. So if you think faith is something that you have in yourself or that you can conjure up in yourself or find in yourself, that's not true. And then just to look ahead, we won't talk about it today, but let's keep this in mind. In verse 17, Paul speaks also of the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Keep that same thing in mind. 
These are not things that we have a right to or that we find in ourselves, but they are things that are graciously given to us for our preparation of disciples. So your salvation is not dependent on your righteousness. You have no righteousness. Your salvation is a result of the righteousness given to you. It's a free gift from God. So never mind all of this stuff. Christianity is about being a good person, which is what's popularly believed. Of course be a good person. I teach some ethics in college. That's easy ethics. I mean, you don't need to convince anybody you're supposed to be a good person. Everybody knows that. The alternative is to be what? An evil or vicious person. That doesn't work out for you, and it doesn't work out for anyone else. We know that that's not the way to be, so of course be a good person. That's not the point. That's not the point at all. You're not going to prove your worth to God, and God's not going to graciously award you with salvation because you've been such a great person. Christianity says something quite different, and as we said, really offensive, but there it is. So today we're looking at verse 16, the shield of faith. So here's a really, really important question that people ask all the time. You know, what is faith? What is faith? We use the word quite a bit. We often think we know what it means, Here's the tricky thing. Often in our conversations and our fellowship, we use the word faith in contradictory, incompatible ways. We don't even really know it. We don't even really realize it. So let's think a little bit more deeply about what that term means. We can say at least this. We've already started saying this. First and foremost, faith is whatever it is. It's something given by God. So it's not something, again, that you find in yourself, that you stir up in yourself by some means, or that you try to focus on to encourage in yourself, as if you can make this stuff exist out of thin air. Um, Some people sort of act that way. They think as if it's theirs. It's a sort of native power in them. It's a sort of discipline that we have to stir up in us. Well, no, no. It's something that's given. In fact, that song that we just sang was right on point. Give me faith to trust what you say. Give me faith. That's right on point. That's precisely right. Brittany was singing that that part we were singing along. Give me faith. It's something given by God, okay? Now, let's say two things that faith is not, and I think this is going to be helpful. I hope it is. First, faith is not willful belief. It is not willful belief. This, I think, is the biggest misconception about the nature of faith. It is not something that you conjure up by means of your will. People think that today. I'm talking about 21st century contemporary people. In the Christian church, this is pretty widespread understanding of the nature of faith. It is a matter of my will. I choose to have faith. I choose to have faith. And it's something that perhaps I don't know, but I engage my will... And by engaging my will, I have faith. And so we kind of look into ourselves. Again, we discipline ourselves. We counsel ourselves to have faith. We counsel others, have faith, as if we're sticking our fingers in our ears and we're saying, just believe, just believe, just believe, just believe. But everything seems out of sorts with that. That doesn't seem to be true at all. Yep, just, just believe, just believe, just believe. But everything else I know seems to contradict that. Never mind, just believe, just believe. And if something goes wrong, you didn't believe hard enough. And then we feel shame, and then shame gives way to anger and resentment at God. How many hoops do you want me to jump through? How hard do you want me to believe God? I believed as hard as I could, and it still didn't go the way that I needed it to go. That's a wrong understanding of faith. Where does it come from? It's actually a very modern understanding. It's not the biblical understanding at all. 
In modern philosophy, there's a very important philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant. Uh, he's kind of at the end of a period known as the Enlightenment. Maybe you've heard that name if you studied any college philosophy. Now, you might say, how relevant could that guy be? I mean, I, I don't know anybody who reads Immanuel Kant, and you're, you know, you're probably right. We're not reading this guy and getting ideas directly from him, but he's so influenced at least the Western way of thinking and understanding that it's just part of the air that we breathe now. And people just think, well, this is obvious. Everybody knows this. It's not obvious at all, and it's not biblical. It's not true. What he said was this. The things that we know, that we know that we know. He was talking about philosophy of knowledge. How, how do we know anything? The things that we know start with sense experience. If you can see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, hear it, it can be a proper item of knowledge. And then it gets filtered through the mind, and he said, in the mind are these innate categories that sort of filter it, kind of like a coin sorting machine. You drop a bunch of coins in, and then it'll produce for you a nice little $10 roll of quarters, nice little package at the end. The thing that pops out is a little item of knowledge. So it's the senses plus the innate structures of the mind working together to produce knowledge. It's very subjective in its view of knowledge. But this is very important. He was very influential in this. If you can't see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, hear it, you can't know it. It's not properly an item of knowledge. Now, our senses are one way to know something. If you know that red is darker than white, you know that by sense experience, because you've seen redness and whiteness, and you have a visual experience. If you know that coffee's very hot, it's because you touched it and tasted it. Your senses tell you these things. But not everything we know, we know by sense experience. I know that one plus two is three, but not because I see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, hear it. I know that by rational reflection. So some things are just sort of obviously rationally true through rational reflection. Mathematical truths and moral truths are like that. Scientific truths are based in the senses. There's also a third way to know, and the third way to know is by testimony. And so if somebody is sort of sitting like this, and you might walk up to them and you might say, are you okay? You, you, you look sad. Are, are you crying? Can I help? And that person might immediately cheer up and go, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not sad at all. I've, I've, I, you know, I'm so happy. Here's some really good news, but you know what? Because the news was so great, I was up all night celebrating, and, uh, and I'm so tired, right? And so... Well, how do you know that that's true? Because they tell you. Because they tell you, and so we accept the things that they tell us. So those are three ways to come to know something. Kant reduced everything down to basing it in sense experience, and then if it's some other kind of knowledge, what do we make of that? That becomes a hard problem for modern philosophy. Well, he finishes his philosophy of, of knowledge, and then he moves on in his next book to his philosophy of right and wrong, or his ethics. And he's a modern German philosopher, and he's very serious about ethics. He doesn't just wave his hand at it and say, oh, do whatever you want. That's craziness, right? That's craziness. No. Right and wrong is consequential. There is a difference. But he realized that if there's no God in his philosophy of right and wrong, then really there is no foundation for right and wrong. And so this is what he says. It's a very striking move in modern philosophy. He says, I don't know that God is, because in order to know that God is, I would have to use sense experiences, and I don't see, touch, taste, smell, or hear God. I'm not a prophet. I don't have sense experiences of God. So God is not properly an item of knowledge. Theology, the study of God, is not a science. It's not a real—we don't know anything about God. But I have faith, and for him, faith 
is an unproven assumption that makes ethics work. So in order for ethics to work, you have to just have this unproven assumption. And so that's how he, he defines faith. So it is fundamentally something apart from knowledge. So faith, knowledge, and faith become sort of opposing categories for Kant. Well, later on in the 19th and 20th century, the existentialists will come along and sort of capitalize on Kant's insight. And what they'll say is, faith is a kind of willful belief with which we live our lives. And so people like Soren Kierkegaard, maybe you know that name, and later on you'll have atheist existentialists, will say, by what we know, you can't live a happy life, you can't live your life rightly. Just seeing, touching, tasting, smelling, hearing things doesn't tell you how to live your life. What you have to do is you have to engage your belief. It's an act of the will, it's not an act of knowledge at all. So knowledge and faith become separate categories, right? They become separate categories. So today, if you ask many Christians, you guys say, God raised Jesus from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15. Really? That's, that's pretty crazy. I mean, that's, I mean, let's think about that for a moment. That's pretty crazy. On Easter morning, we're so audacious as to say he is risen indeed, indeed. We seem to be really certain. Do you know it? Do you know it? I know that there's a podium here. I'm touching it. You're hearing me bang on it. You're seeing it. I'm seeing it. I could ask you if you see it. Am I, is it some sort of illusion I'm experiencing? I engage all of my senses. I could lick it and taste it. I don't advise that. I've, I've done it. I've done it in the classroom purely for pedagogical reasons. It freaks out the sophomores, is what the dean told me. So, podiums taste weird. <laughs> Most podiums now are covered in coronavirus anyway. So, anyway, here's the podium. I know there's a podium here. Do I know that God raised Jesus from the dead? Like, I know there's a podium here. Really? That seems to be the Christian testimony. We know it. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is pulling his hair out. We know it. We saw him. We beheld him. We know it. Now, what right do we have to say that he's risen indeed? According to Kant, no right. At best, you can say, well, I, I, I will to believe it. I believe it because, well, it does something for me. And the skeptical world hears delusion. And they say, well, knock yourself out. I don't need that nonsense. I've got other things going on. Does that make sense? I think that's the wrong way to go. Faith is not willful belief. Here's a third thing that's very important. Faith is not mere knowledge. Okay? So faith is not something separate from knowledge, but it's also not something just identical to knowledge. It's not just knowledge. Consider what James says in James 2.19, James, the younger half-brother of Jesus himself, the son of Mary and Joseph, okay, the bishop at the church of Jerusalem in the first century, he's writing to his people who, after the murder of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, had been scared away from Jerusalem. Many of them went to Antioch. He writes them this letter, and he's talking about certain things in their own congregation. And in James 2, he just, he's talking to some people, and he says, um, you believe that God is one. You believe in one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, right? That's just dripping with sarcasm. You believe that there's a God. Good for you. You're supposed to believe that. You're not designed to be an atheist. 
If you're an atheist, your metaphysics is too narrow. You don't believe in enough things. If you're a polytheist, you believe in too many things. They're both the wrong way to go. You're, you're designed to believe in one God. You didn't accomplish anything um, uh, laudable. That's what you're supposed to do. So you believe in one God, good for you. What do you want an award? That's how James is talking. Even the demons believe in shudder. So it's not merely knowledge of God. Here, I think, is the biblical definition of faith. And again, I hope this is helpful. Faith is trust. We can also put in the word hope. Faith is trust based on knowledge of God. Faith is trust slash hope based on knowledge of God. Now, you might think, well, I do think that, so you didn't really tell me anything all that new. Uh, to which case, we could say, you know, fair enough, but let's think a little bit more deeply about this. Faith is trust slash hope based on knowledge of God. Why do you have trust in anyone whatsoever? If you trust somebody, why would you have trust in anyone whatsoever? It's got to be on the basis of knowledge. So with my students, I say this. I say, imagine this very scary situation that many people in their early 20s can, uh, can relate to. Because of your poor planning, you're driving in a very desolate area, and um, it, you look down at your gas gauge, and you've been listening to music the whole time, and you weren't paying attention, and you're about to run out of gas. And you hear the engine start sputtering, and, it's, and your heart sinks. And again, because of your poor planning, you forgot to bring your charger along, so you haven't been charging your phone, you've been listening to music the whole time, and then to your horror, you look at your phone and you realize you've got 2% two, 2 left. So you're running out of gas, and your phone is running out of power, and you're in the middle of nowhere. You don't know exactly where you are. Now, in that moment, you have a choice. You can call your good-for-nothing brother, who's never done anything for you, and because you know this guy, you know that it's not a good bet to call this guy. You don't have a whole lot of trust. Or you could call your loving, dutiful father, right? Imagine that you were to call your, oh, I, I, I forgot my phone, but uh, it's, it's back there, but okay. Imaginary phone. You'd call your brother. Hey, yeah, what? Uh, I ran out of gas and my phone's about to die. Look, you're the only person I can call. I'm going to send you my location. Can you come pick me up? It's really important. I don't want to be out here alone. Yeah, 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 I can come. It doesn't sound like you can come. It sounds like you're busy. Yeah, I'm playing Fortnite, whatever. I'm coming. Are you sure you're coming? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just send it. Bye. After that conversation, knowing your brother, knowing who your brother is, I asked my students, do you have a whole lot of trust or hope? Uh, that somebody's coming to get you immediately, or are you preparing for a very long night out in the middle of nowhere? Um, probably the latter. Now imagine you make the smarter move and you call, again, your loving, dutiful father, who you know would do anything for you. And as far as you can remember, has been so sacrificial, and you know nobody's perfect, but he's done everything for you that you've ever needed. You can't remember anything Contrary to that, and so you call your father, and he's like Liam Neeson in the movie Taken, and he's like, I will find you, you know? And then you put, you put down the phone, how do you feel? I ask them. Oh, maybe you're, you're with your friend, and your friend's battery is also dead, really poor planning, and, you, and your friend says, is your dad coming to get us? And, and you would say, yeah, yeah, oh, good. Oh, I definitely... Now I'm feeling hopeful, finally feeling hopeful, because I was really scared, but he's coming. Don't worry about it. 
Why is it that we have that trust and hope? It's not fingers in your ears, eyes closed, I surely believe, on the basis of nothing. I called a random stranger that I know nothing about. No. You called someone that you know very well, and your level of trust and hope is proportionate to how well you know them. The more you know them, the more you trust. So if you're an agnostic and you are open to the idea of God, but you know almost nothing about God, you're not going to have a whole lot of faith. And you can't just conjure it up in yourself by saying, believe, 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 believe. That's not how that works. You have to know things about God. Now, how do we come to know anything about God? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, God has revealed spiritual truths to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, given even the depths of God. How do we know that God raised Jesus from the dead and any other spiritual truth? Here's how you know it. Never mind that a skeptical world thinks that you're deluded. That's fine. If you know it, here's how you know it. The Spirit has directly taught you. This is called the testimony of the Spirit. So remember I mentioned that there were at least three ways to come to know something. Sense experience, rational reflection, and testimony. The testimony of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2, is a divine testimony. And I think that I have that. I can say things. I believe things. I know things like Jesus is Lord. God raised Jesus from the dead. I don't think I'm crazy. I don't think I'm deluded, right? I mean, I can check those things, but I don't think that's the case. Now, admittedly, the skeptic who doesn't have the testimony of the Spirit can't say the same thing and may be suspicious of my claims. Fair enough. But if he doesn't have a good argument against the existence of God, like an argument for atheism or against the testimony of the Spirit, and I'm not aware of any such good argument, well, then I can happily go on knowing that I have the testimony of the Spirit, unless he gives me really, really good reasons to doubt. So I'm a rational person. I'm reasonable. I'm willing to talk about this. But it seems to me that I do know it on the basis of the testimony of the Spirit. And so that's a perfectly legitimate way for us to know something. And in fact, we do know it. That makes sense of 1 Corinthians 15. Again, Paul was pulling out his hair and he says, we know these things. So we don't have to play this game. Well, I don't know it, but I have faith. No, feel comfortable saying, yes, I know it. In fact, I do know it. Like the apostles, this is something that we know. That justifies you on Easter morning saying he's risen indeed. Otherwise, you're lying to yourself and everyone else around you. But if you want to say he's risen indeed, by all means, go ahead and do that because the Spirit teaches us that. So faith is trust or hope based in knowledge. Now, Paul tells us that we should take up the shield of faith for what purpose? With which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. How do we do that? Uh, really quickly, two ways. First, like Job. Hopefully you know the story of Job. It's a marathon. If you're interested in reading Job and really getting um, the full context of that story, oh gosh, you know, it's, it, it, just know that you're in for a marathon. But it's a very long story. It's a very upsetting story even of God allowing this righteous man named Job to suffer desperately, to suffer desperately. And he doesn't understand why. And Job's friends are counseling him and saying, well, he, you know, you must have done something wrong. They have this sort of karmic theology. Like, if you do good things, good things happen to you. If you do bad things, bad things happen to you. Isn't that religiously obvious? Isn't that how the universe works? Many people talk this way, this very karmic way. It turns out that karma is totally false. The book of Job tells us that's not true at all. 
Job says, I didn't do anything wrong or evil or bad. I don't know why God is allowing this to happen. Job goes so far to say in Job 13.5, though he slay me, I will hope in him. I will trust in him, though he slay me. A wonderful expression of faith. Where does he get that faith from? Where does he receive that faith? At the end of the book of Job, God speaks to Job and his friends from a whirlwind. And so after Job has made all of these accusations and says, God has made me my enemy, and I don't know why he's allowing this, and his friends are saying, you did something wrong, just confess what you did, and then the evil will pass. He says, there's nothing to confess. I didn't do anything wrong. God speaks from the whirlwind, and in in, uh, chapter 38, he says, uh, it says this, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning star sang together with all the sons of God, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. What do you think it is that you know, Job, about me and my ways? I give and I take away. What's that to you, Job? And then God goes into this monologue about two things, that he's great and that he's good. He just tells Job, I am great and I am good. He never explains to Job why the evil happened to him. And at the end of God's monologue, Job answers in in, uh, chapter 42 and says to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then later he says, I lay my hand over my mouth. I raise no more accusation. Job is satisfied. He realizes even though he doesn't understand why God has permitted it, he knows that God is great and good. And he's sure of that on the basis of what? God's own testimony to him. He is sure of it. And given that God is great and good, guess what? He says, though he slay me, I will trust in him. I will hope in him. It doesn't matter. The only person satisfied with the book of Job is Job himself. The reader is unsatisfied. You get to the end and you're like, yeah, but what was the reason? Doesn't say. And all of Job's friends are like, what? That's not how it works. And God says, Job, I'm very angry with your friends. They've spoken falsely of me. That's how the book ends. Know that God is great and good. How do we do that? by studying God's word. That is the key way. That's not the only way, but that is the key way. Deeply getting into the scriptures which God has testified to us. Secondly, and I'll end with this, how can we take up the sword of faith? Uh, Follow Peter's instruction to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that's in you. Be prepared to make a defense for the hope that's in you. Hope or trust. You have hope or trust in Jesus Christ. And the world is going to call us to account for that. Why do you have hope or trust in Jesus Christ? Again, by means of the testimony of the Spirit, but we can do good ministry work by connecting the testimony of the Spirit, which we have, thoughtfully connecting that to philosophy, science, and history. Because by birth, we are philosophers. You have a rational mind. You are a reasonable person by birth. Some people more than others, admittedly. But by birth, we are philosophers. We think about our thoughts, which is a philosophical thing to do. We're scientists by birth. We have sense organs, and we have a scientific perspective on the world. I think that there's a podium here. I told you that. That's a scientific claim based on my senses. And we are historians by birth. We have memories. 
And so if we can connect the testimony of the Spirit to philosophy, science, and history, well then, what we're doing is we're taking up the shield of faith, and we are turning away the fiery darts of the enemy who tries to spur doubts in us, tries to contradict the testimony of the Spirit. And so we can deflect those darts, just as Job did, by making those connections. And how do we make those connections? Well, that's what we did last night in Biblical Foundations. That was one example. If we can make a case, if we can make a philosophical case, kind of like Immanuel Kant did, that, look, if there's right and wrong, I think there is, there must be some transcendent lawgiver behind it. Otherwise, we're just making it up. I think that that's the basis of a sound argument. If you're an atheist, uh, you got some explaining to do, as Ricky Ricardo would say. Uh, seems like you're in psychopath world. It seems like anything is permissible. That can't be right. Where did the whole universe come from? And why does it have the meticulous design that it has? Today, contemporary cosmologists speak of the Big Bang and the fine-tuning of the universe. Bangs don't cause themselves. Presumably, if there's a Big Bang, there's a Big Banger. Systems don't order themselves. Presumably, this is a claim of physics. The universe, they say, is fine-tuned for life. That's what physicists are saying. That sounds like a theological claim. If it's fine-tuned, as they say, presumably there's a fine-tuner. These sorts of things are the deliverances of contemporary science, which are very encouraging to faith. Last night, we talked about the historicity of the resurrection. There's a good historical case based largely in the teachings of the apostles and other artifacts and other contemporary historians that, in fact, the tomb of Jesus Christ was found empty. He was witnessed by his own disciples. We made that case last night. These things are to take up the shield of faith. All right. Let me call up the, the worship team, and let's think more about that now and worship uh, about that, um, taking up the shield of faith in these ways. Again, like Job, learning that God is great and good by devoting ourselves to Scripture and then agreeing with the apostle, obeying the commandment of the apostle to be ready, to be ready, to think about these things differently and make, uh, uh, diligently and to make these connections between the testimony of the Spirit and the world that we live in and, our, again, our philosophical, scientific, and historical perspective on things, that is to take up the shield of faith and encourage one another in this. And then we truly know what we're saying. And you have every right to teach these things and preach these things and say that he's risen indeed. Okay? Amen. Thanks, Sanjay. Can we stand together? I want to invite our prayer team to come forward and um, just want to invite you, if you are in a place this morning where you feel like I need help lifting my shield to extinguish the darts of the enemy, we've got folks up here that would love to pray.